Welcome back to Christian's Colloquy. I'm Christian, and I'm so glad that you could join me again this week. Today is finally the day when we will be finishing up our look at John Cotton's Keys of the Kingdom of Heaven. It's been an interesting book to look at. We've had two episodes on it already. I suggest you check it out if you haven't caught those ones. But today we'll be looking at the final chapter, chapter 7, and discussing John Cotton's view and understanding of independency, local churches being independent bodies. Before we dive into this content, just very briefly, I will just summarize what we've covered before. In that first video, we looked at the first five chapters, which uh, introduced the concept of the keys, these keys uh, responding to different passages of scripture, which speak of various powers, authorities, liberties of the local church, and to whom they belong to. Cotton discussed mostly in those first five chapters what it looked like inside the church, how all believers have the key of faith, all church members have the key of liberty and order, and then elders, officers of local churches have the key of authority. And these different keys respond to different realities of Christian life and different positions you might find yourself. In the last episode, we looked at chapter 6, where Cotton introduced uh, and described his vision or understanding of synods, what synods are in terms of their churches gathering together when an issue arises. He discussed why the churches might gather. For example, if a local church is facing an issue they can't figure out on their own, uh, they might gather together a synod or call for a synod for other churches to weigh in, give them the support they need. Or if all the churches in a region, a country, or an area are seeing a general decline in the churches, whether that be their, their doctrine or their practice, they might call a synod to bring about general reformation. And in that, it was interesting where if these synods gathered for the legitimate reasons, Cotton believed they had the true authority to respond to these issues. If a church is out of line, these synods can lay down a form of discipline or a plan moving forward. Or if uh, the churches discovered what the issue is, they might have a general idea of how to respond as a culture. And in today's time, you might think of, hey, if the church is in an area, a part of a, a fellowship or an association are seeing a, a general decline in their perhaps theology proper, in their doctrine of God. They might gather together a synod and have a list of affirmations that the churches must sign on that lay out an orthodox, a right doctrine of God. But it was interesting that Cotton, taking this example, he believed there were some limits on synods. The churches couldn't gather together to discuss a doctrine on God. Then all of a sudden, uh, the synod declares, oh, by the way, while we're here talking about the doctrine of God and responding to it biblically, let's make a rule that uh, only uh, churches can only ordain elders if they're over 80 years old or something like that. Uh, Cotton would say, hey, no, that's outside of the issue of the synod. And frankly, that goes beyond what the word of God outlines. There's nothing in the word of God that says that a 70-year-old man, a 50-year-old man, a 40-year-old man, and so on and so forth cannot be an elder. Here I am today, a 25-year-old man, an elder. But that's where Cotton would say synods have authority, but they are limited in a few different ways. Anyway, that's the recap. If that sounds interesting, if you haven't checked out those episodes, highly recommend you check out the previous installments in this series. But here we are today looking at chapter 7. Again, John Cotton's uh, defense or presentation of independency. We just talked about synods, but why are churches 
independent? Why are they independent bodies? Why don't they answer to a bishop? Why don't churches answer to a higher level of governance, whether that's a presbytery or a standing synod, a synod that's always there that doesn't just come for particular situations? Why are churches independent bodies? Well, here's what Cotton has to say in chapter 7, chapter 7 entitled, Touching the First Subject of All the Aforementioned Power of the Keys and an Explanation of Independency. This chapter is truly a conclusion. And as a conclusion on the topic of the keys and church governance in general, Cotton begins in an interesting place with a discussion of Jesus Christ. So, speaking about the keys in general, Cotton declares... The Lord Jesus Christ, the head of his church, is the first proper subject of the sovereign power of the keys. So that's a critical point here for Cotton. He wants to begin his conclusion by reminding us or stating clearly that ultimately Jesus Christ is the sovereign Lord, the head of his church, and he holds the sovereign power of the keys. He is the first subject who wields the sovereign power of the keys. And why is he saying that? What is he referring to? Well, there are some verses that he's thinking of. For example, Revelation 3, 7, where it states the Holy One, the true one, Jesus Christ here. He has the key of David who opens and no one will shut and who shuts and no one will, no one opens. He has a power to open and shut that no one can undo. That alone belongs to Jesus Christ. That's his sovereign power. He also looks to Isaiah 6-7, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. The government, including church government, mainly church government, frankly, is upon the shoulders of Christ. He is the sovereign Lord. Finally, Matthew 28-18, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. That's Jesus speaking. So when we're thinking about the various power of the keys, authority, order, everything in between, ultimately the key of David belongs to Jesus Christ. He's the head of the church. He's the king. And the reason why Cotton starts with this point about Jesus Christ being the head of church, the first proper subject of the sovereign power of the keys, is to make the following points. So, Christ is the first subject of the sovereign keys. Therefore, Christ holds all legislative power in the church. He looks to James 4.12, Isaiah 33.22. What does that mean? Only Christ has the authority to make laws in the church. He is the only lawgiver in the church. And that's a powerful point saying the church can't just start arbitrarily making up rules, making up instructions. Christ alone is the lawgiver. All legislative power belongs to Christ in the church. Second point, because Christ is head of the church and holds the sovereign power of the keys as the first subject, he alone, Christ alone, can erect and ordain a true constitution of a church of state. He looks to Hebrews 3, 3 to 6. Christ is building his own house. And that's an interesting point, a key point of historic congregationalism and Puritanism as a movement in general. Cotton, among other congregationalists, and this was an opinion shared by Presbyterian Puritans about the Presbyterian government, is that Christ alone can determine what church governance looks like. He laid it out in his gospel. And of course, in Cotton's opinion, that uh, uh, church estate that Christ laid out, the constitution of a church estate, is congregational congregational polity. 
So that's the point. He's arguing against people that say church government or polity uh, is something that churches can create or come up with as needs dictate. It's a point of where churches can different places and times can disagree, take on different things. Cotton says, no, Christ alone, he can erect and ordain true constitution of a church. He alone can ordain what is a good and right polity, and you have to look to the word to find that. A third point is that Christ alone ordains the offices and ministries of the church. He looks at 1 Corinthians 12, 5, and 8, and ministries there. He's speaking about gifting. He has a few more points, the, a few more therefores, that speak to how Christ, from Christ, the Spirit of Christ, included all this, very Trinitarian theology. He grants the offices of the church, the gifts of the church, and really allows the church to have the ministry, where all the blessings of knowledge, of wisdom, they come from Christ. So Christ alone raises up, establishes offices and ministries in the church by virtue of him giving the gifts to the church where everyone has a gift everyone has a place and position in the church that comes from christ alone and his authority as the first subject of the power of the keys so that's the first point in conclusion christ is the first subject of the keys ultimately it all goes back to jesus christ that's the key point here all the power you think of about the church all the authority all the structure ultimately that goes back to Jesus Christ. And of course, this was a big theme for Cotton writing in the 17th century uh, as uh, 17th century, going into 18th century, that era where uh, for English-speaking Protestants, the concern was still very much the Roman Catholic Church and the papacy. That was something they were thinking about, worried about. It was still a threat to Protestants in a lot of ways, especially for English-speaking Protestants, seeing uh, France as a Roman Catholic power who uh, did the Pope's bidding, of course, we could get into uh, their political understandings, uh, various propaganda pieces going on along at the time. But the papacy was still very much in the context. And that's what leads Cotton to say the following. But of this sovereign power of Christ, there is no question among Protestants, especially studious of the Reformation. Now, as concerning the ministerial power, we give these following propositions. So what's going on here? Chapter 7, this concluding chapter, it starts with the discussion of Christ being the head of the church, the first subject of the sovereign power of the keys. And this, in Cotton's mind, in the mind of his readers, is in contrast to those of the Roman Catholic persuasion of their day who would look to the Pope, who understood that the Pope had the power to create laws, who understood that the Pope had the power to declare offices or to grant ministries and all those different sorts of things. Things. I know if I have any Roman Catholic listeners right now, they would see it as a lot more nuanced or think that I or Cotton are misrepresenting the Roman Catholic Church. But we have to remember, of course, uh, Protestants looking in will have different opinions on what's actually going on, what's the logical conclusion of what's going on. And of course, I am working with Cotton's context, his understanding that uh Puritans in that day and age had a way of viewing the Roman Catholic Church. They might not have understood all the nuances or they might have been speaking about what they were seeing at the time practically, not necessarily what a Roman Catholic might believe today or might believe of the past today and that sort of thing. So, of course, this is a context of the 17th century. But after that, speaking about Christ, 
with the Pope in the background, he's quick to, or he's having this Pope figure as his frame of reference. He moves on to say, well, as Protestants, we agree about Christ holding the sovereign power of the keys. And from that, here are some propositions that he believes builds out of that point. And here's where we'll see Cotinus saying, hey, if we believe this about Jesus Christ, here are the implications this has on the church. And of course, he believes these implications lead to a congregation's polity. But let's dive into them. What are these propositions? Well, first of all, proposition one is that a particular church or congregation of saints is the first subject of all church offices with all their spiritual gifts and power, which Christ hath given them to be executed among them. So what's caught in point here? If Christ is the head of the church, then individual churches, actual churches, local churches, they are the first subject of church offices. They are the first subject of the gifts and power that Christ has given to his church. And he has an argument from this, building mostly from the New Testament, but he makes an interesting secondary point, supporting point. In the New Testament, we don't observe any national church nor do we see any national officers. He'll speak of those as Old Testament realities. But in the New Testament church, and this is a point that many Baptists will point to as well, when the New Testament typically speaks of the church, especially the practical life of the church, it's typically speaking about local churches. Elders are officers of the local church. Deacons are officers of the local church. While there was the unique role of the apostle, which we'll get into, John Cotton's proposition is Christ is the head of the church and flowing from his sovereign power, he bestows gifts, positions, authorities to those of local churches. There is no conception of a national church in the New Testament. So that's the first point. The local church is the primary body in view here. What's the second proposition? The apostles of Christ were the first subject of apostolic power. And that's ministerial he's thinking about. So the apostles, they in themselves had the power of elders, of pastors, of deacons, but they also had the powers of the church itself. They could baptize, they could discipline and excommunicate, and Cotton works in all sorts of examples. But really, the secondary point here, which gets to Cotton's point, is that apostolic power has extended itself to all churches as much as to any one. So when you think about the apostolic office and that role it played in the New Testament church, that is extended to all churches. All churches as churches have apostolic authority. And that's why they have pastors. That's why they have deacons. That's why they have the ability to baptize. That's why they have the ability to discipline and excommunicate, so on and so forth. The church as the apostolic church, it's the church that has the apostolic gifting powers not there's no more new apostles and of course in the back of his mind is roman catholic apostolic succession but cotton's point here is that the churches the local churches have the apostolic power and this comes from the apostles who were the first subject the third point here when the church of a particular congregation walks together in truth and peace the brethren of the church are the first subject of church liberty and the elders thereof of church authority these are things we discussed in that first episode 
And both of them together are the first subject of all church power needful to be exercised within themselves, whether in the election and ordination of officers or in the censure of offenders in their own body. So as you can see here, or maybe you picked up on, these propositions are building upon themselves. Church, uh, Christ has his sovereign power, which then he bestows uh, abilities and responsibilities to the church. The apostles had their power, but it was extended to the churches. The churches, as the apostolic churches, have their power. And then finally, it's that the churches, if they're walking together in truth and peace, they have their uh, power. They churches that are walking together in uh, truth and peace, the brethren of those local churches, they are the first subject of church liberty, and their elders are the first subject of church authority. And together, the local church together, the brethren and the elders, if you want to use uh, older, or uh, more archaic, perhaps, uh, terms, the lay and the clerical, lay people and the clergy people together, they have within themselves, within the local church, all the power needful to be exercised within themselves. And that's the key thrust here. Building on all those points about Christ, about the apostles, and everything that comes earlier in the book, it's that the local churches, the people and officers together, have everything they need to carry on with themselves, to ordain elders, to uh, elect elders, to censure offenders. The local churches in themselves have everything they need, essentially, to be the church. And that's a powerful point. I believe here you could get the idea of what where's the congregational fitting in, congregationalism fitting in. Local churches in and of themselves have everything they need. And that allows them, or that's the reason why they are independent, so to speak. But Proposition 3, of course, it's the biggest one, the most controversial. And Cotton goes on to sort of speak of three branches. And he, in this chapter 7, has a section outlining the first part about the brethren, a second part about the elders and their authority. And finally, Proposition 3, uh, he has a discussion about that third part, where together the people and the elders can be the church themselves. They have everything they need. And he says, defending this third branch or beginning a defense, what defect may be found in such a call when the brethren exercise their lawful liberty and elders in their lawful authority in his ordination and nothing more is required to complete integrity of a minister's calling? If it be said that there wanted imposition of hands by the bishop, who succeeded in the place of Timothy and Titus, whom the apostle Paul left the one in Ephesus and the other in Crete, to ordain elders in many churches. So of the first part of that statement, again, this is the archaic language and sentence structure of Cotton. I will try my best to parse it out. In that first part, he's getting at uh, lawfully, and this is a key point, if the brethren and the elders are doing everything po uh, properly, what else is needed to get the job done? To, uh, I guess, uh, extend themselves, to ordain new elders, to discipline. What else could elders and brethren need? And of course, Cotton believes in nothing else. They have everything they need. That's the point. But in the second part, he's getting at a common argument people make about the need for bishops. And this entire section, he's laying out uh, objections and answering them almost very scholastically. I encourage you, check it out if this interests you. But a common argument made for the need of bishops, of that office above local churches, is the example of Timothy and Titus in the New Testament. That these are, uh, people will argue, I've heard this especially from my Anglican friends, that Timothy and Titus are examples of proto-bishops. That Paul 
left them in various regions, and they, as bishops, had the job to ordain elders, to finish building up these churches. And so now Cotton, in this one section, and this I'm giving as an example of what Cotton's talking about, he will now respond to this argument that, no, the brethren and the elders are not complete, that they need bishops to ordain elders, that they need this higher office. Well, what does Cotton say in response? Firstly, that Timothy and Titus did not ordain elders in many churches as bishops, but as evangelists. Timothy is expressly termed an evangelist in 2 Timothy 4.5. So what's Cotton's point here? Well, he acknowledges, yes, Timothy and Titus were ordaining elders. They were filling up this special function in this early church situation, but they weren't acting as this unique higher office of bishop. Rather, they were acting in this New Testament, New Covenant office of evangelist. Essentially, they were part of the apostolic, this unique apostolic effort to build up the early church in this unique time in church history, this time when the churches were still being established. So that's his first response. What you're calling bishops is this unique uh, apostolic office of evangelists, where Timothy and Titus were continuing the work of Paul and the apostles in their establishing of churches. It wasn't a new office that was being established. Rather, it was the apostles' work being carried on in this work of evangelists. They were finishing the establishing of these churches. They weren't setting up a new system. But he has a few more arguments. Uh, Going on from there, that those bishops, and this, of course, is getting a bit more general, uh, those bishops whose calling our offices in the church are set forth to those epistles to be continued, they are altogether synonymous with presbyters. So when the Bible does speak of bishops, they're speaking of bishops in a way that is synonymous with presbyters, elders. So that's another classic thing you might be familiar with. Bishops, when we say bishops, when Baptists historically used the term bishops, they're not speaking of a higher office. Rather, Baptists and other Congregationalist groups believe that bishops, overseers, are synonymous with elders, each being terms shared by the same office to speak of different sides of that office, and it comes together with pastors. It's all one office, pastors, elders, bishops, but they refer to different aspects of that one ministry. So that's his point here too. And he leaves out the verses where you can check out. And moving on from there, why else would this Timothy Titus argument not hold water? When he, we read of many bishops to one church, so his point is that in scripture, and of course, look at the references he puts, you can see them there, one church will have multiple bishops, sort of like Baptist churches today typically will have one church with multiple elders or pastors, and we see that in the New Testament, but what we don't see in the New Testament are many churches having one bishop. We don't see this concept of diocese where there's this single bishop in charge of a bunch of churches. We'll see one church with multiple bishops lending itself to that elders and bishops being synonymous, but we don't see multiple churches answering to one bishop. The third point here is that there's no transcendent or proper work cut out or reserved for such a transcendent officer as a bishop over a diocese. What's his point here? That in the New Testament, we see no instruction, we see no need to have this office above local churches, where there is a bishop above all these local churches. And in fact, he points out to say that Paul, in his writing to Timothy, acknowledges no rulers in the church above pastors and teachers. 
So what's the point here? If you were to check out Cotton's work, this is one of the many arguments he uses to show that in the local church, there is everything churches need to carry on with their business, to ordain, to discipline, to welcome new members, to ex excommunicate a need be, in addition to teaching, preaching, administering the ordinances, and so on and so forth. Looking at this argument from Timothy and Titus, one of the, I believe, few scriptural arguments people will use to support bishops, he says, no, it doesn't work out, and here are all the reasons why. And he has a few more like that, some responding to more Presbyterian or Presbyterial arguments about synods and presbyteries above the local church. But I encourage you, if that interests you, again, check it out for yourself. It's wonderful to read, but this is already so long, it's already so much. Moving on, and we're getting, getting close to the end here, don't worry. After laying out what he says about Christ and what he says about the local church having everything it needs, he has these collaries, these conclusions. In light of all these points and propositions, what can we conclude? Here are Cotton's conclusions at the end of the book. Firstly, the church is not independent on Christ, but dependent on him for all church power. Ministry is dependent upon sovereignty. I love that line. So what he's saying is, while the church is an independent body, it's independent in a sense that it doesn't answer to other human authorities, but truly in all of its power and all of its authority and all of its liberty, it is dependent upon Christ. And he has this wonderful line unpacking it. The more dependent the church is on Christ, the more powerful it is, the more power it has. So when we speak of churches being independent, remember this, we're speaking of independence from higher offices like a presbytery above local churches or a bishop above local churches. Churches answer to Christ the king, the first subject of the power of the keys. The second conclusion, the first subject of ministerial power of the keys, though it be independent in respect of devoration from the power of the sword to the performance of any spiritual administration, yet it is subject to the power of the sword in matters which concern the civil peace. Again, this is a big discussion right now with COVID-19 and everything going on. But Cotton's point here is that churches are independent when it comes to their responsibilities, their spiritual responsibilities. But they have to listen to the civil government, the power of the sword, when it comes to issues of civil peace. Again, this is kind of uh, like two kingdoms theology, if you're familiar with that. But essentially, Cotton is saying the churches have their independency on matters of church life, of spiritual life. But when it comes to civil government and civil peace, churches are not independent from the civil authorities. They have to listen to them, heed them. And of course, this uh, Cotton has this long section on it, but a key theme for Cotton is that there is lawful churches doing lawful things and lawful civil governments doing lawful things and that gets wrapped up into there and you can sort of see the roots for the american revolution and that kind of conversation but i'll leave it there cotton acknowledges churches are independent but acknowledges they have their sphere of influence and the civil government has their own sphere of influence and they don't they shouldn't contradict each other they have their own responsibilities granted by god and they should each look to their own responsibilities the government shouldn't impose spiritual injunctions upon the church and the church shouldn't go uh, taking civil peace and justice into their own hands a third conclusion 
that a church of a particular congregation consisting of elders and brethren and walking in the truth and peace of the gospel as it is the first subject of all church power needful to be exercised within itself so it is independent upon any other church or synod for existence of the same. That's the key point about congregational polity in the context of what goes on outside the church. The church's elders and brethren, they have everything they need to be the church. Everything they need. They don't depend upon any other office, whether that's a bishop above them or a sin above them. A church doing what it's supposed to be doing. Again, that's key. Walking in truth and peace of the gospel. It has everything needful to be exercised within itself for the exercise of the same. That's the independence of churches. They have everything they need on their own because they are dependent upon Christ and Christ alone. Key, beautiful point. Two more. Number four, that a church fallen into any offense. Again, this is key. That lawful part is key. Walking in truth and peace is key. But that church fallen into any offense, whether it be the whole church or a strong party in it, is not independent in the exercise of church power. A church, though typically independent, can lose that independence if it fails to walk as it should walk. And then they become subject to the admonition admonition of any other church and to the determination and judicial sentence of a synod for direction in the way of truth and peace. Again, look at that episode on synods. Churches are independent, but if they go astray, the other churches, synods, gathering together in response to a particular situation, they have the authority, their actual authority, to set them down the right path. The synod is in a standing body above local churches. That's always there. But in response to an issue, Synods can direct local churches to take the steps they need to to get back on the way of truth and peace. And it's when they're walking in truth and peace that they are independent. Pretty key point and pretty interesting point about historic congregationalism. Finally, though the church uh, of particular congregation consisting of elders and brethren and walking with right foot in the truth and peace of the gospel be the first subject of all church power needful to be exercised within itself and consequently be independent from any other church or synod in the use of it, yet it is safe and wholesome and a holy ordinance of Christ for such particular churches to join together in holy covenant or communion. Cotton's key point that I think a lot of Baptists have struggled with in particularly the last century. We're getting a lot better at it now, and I'll leave links to that in the description and talk about that next time. Cotton's point here is that while churches, churches which are walking as they should walk, doing what they should be doing, they are independent of themselves. They could take care of everything themselves. But it is good and right and God-honoring for these independent churches to join with other churches in holy communion or covenant. So think about Baptist churches today. We have a lot of churches that take independence to mean we are totally independent of all other churches, we're our own thing. But we have a lot of great solid Baptist churches which recognize we're independent bodies, we take care of everything, we have everything we need, but we will choose to work together with churches around us for the propagation of the gospel, for our own safety, our own security, for our own comfort. We will walk together with churches and together be edified by one another. And that's why in Canada, my church is part of the fellowship of Baptist uh, evangelical Baptist churches. In the States, there are many similar Baptist associations or conventions, but that's the call for churches. Though they are independent, 
they should work together, build one another up, be in contact with one another. And that's such a wonderful thing. And that's a wonderful thing that a lot of Baptist churches today are really starting to think about again. And again, check out down below for some resources about Baptist associationalism. Anyway, that's it from Cotton. I hope that you enjoyed this uh, part of the series on congregationalism when we unpacked his work. I hope that you understood everything I talked about. I know Cotton, it, it can be a bit hard to read, but if you have any questions about Cotton, about my understanding of Cotton, or if you have any suggestions for future episodes or anything like that, uh, leave a comment in the, uh, in the comment section down below. Send me an email. Reach out to me on uh, any social media you might have me on, Facebook or Discord, wherever it might be. I want this, again, to be a colloquy, to be a conversation about church history with the figures of church history. Anyway, that's it for now. I hope to see you again for the next episode, where in the next one, I'll be talking about some of my contemporary Baptist views or understandings of congregationalism. Anyway, I hope to see you again. Take care. <laughs>